We do have a very fitting text this morning, one that was not planned out ahead of time. Uh, If you know, if you've been with us, we're working through the book of Luke, and uh, we are today in Luke 6, 27 to 36. Um, This is a text that is all about uh, loving our enemies, uh, which is an interesting text to have on a day when we remember uh, those who have fought against our enemies to ensure our freedom. Uh, That tension is one that we are going to examine in the text. If you know the context, Jesus has just preached about uh, four beatitudes, four truths that would have been very shocking in our day. Last uh, week, we looked at that. He spoke about how it's, we are blessed by God when we are poor of spirit, hungry, sorrowful, even hated, that in that dynamic, there's great blessing for us. And you can imagine the people there, there's a group of people who would have just been like, what is is this? This That's such a shocking teaching. And so the follow-up to it is just as uh, strange, just as difficult. And that is uh, the response to those who hate us is one of love. Not just love for our neighbors, not just love for the people who love us, but love for our enemies. It's, it's a new, and you would say, unnatural love. In fact, that's the title of the sermon, the unnatural love that we are called to. But what we're going to find is that this unnatural love really is the love that God has for each one of us. And as we examine this text and come to understand this call of Christ on our lives, we are going to necessarily come to understand uh, God's love for us even more. So, uh, with that in mind, I'm going to read through the whole text, uh, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says this, uh, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those that would do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Well, that's the teaching, and we can see right from just the face of it that it's a tough teaching. It's tough to understand how it is that this kind of love could be a good thing. And yet, we see very clearly that um, Jesus has placed an emphasis on this kind of love. He takes time not just to state it, but then to explain it. And so even though this feels like an unnatural love, uh, I'm going to argue this morning that this is, in fact, uh, the truest sense of love. And so we're going to look at this true love, this unnatural, enemy-loving yet true love from uh, three different sort of points of view, three different points. First, the revelation of true love. Secondly, the explanation of true love. And thirdly, the source of true love. Let's look again at verses 27 and 28 and see what exactly Jesus is calling us to do. He says, But I say to you who hear three things. Love your enemies by doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, and praying for those who abuse you. I think if we're honest, we know that it's hard for us to even love the people that we like, right? So how are we going to love and do good and bless those who hate us? 
This is a very difficult command. I mean, all of us can probably imagine, just probably someone comes to mind that is, you probably fairly described as an enemy. Uh, the, the person that came to my mind is actually a neighbor, was a neighbor of ours. Now, uh, some of you may know that our, our parents live next to us, so I need to clarify, I'm not talking about them. Uh, they are mostly good neighbors. Now, this is a neighbor that we had while we were in North Vancouver. We were renting a home there. And right when we moved into this home, there was a woman, an older woman who lived in the basement. And the very first day, she came up to us and she, she said, uh, how many kids do you have? We said, we have four kids. She said, I hate kids. Uh, I'm going to move. And we thought, great. But she didn't move. She stayed there. Uh, and it turned out she was not working at the time. So she was there all the time. And we were homeschooling at the time. So it was the perfect storm of an older woman who absolutely was antagonistic towards our family. Uh, we knew right away that this was going to be a challenge, and there was a resolve in our hearts to be kind, to be gracious. We tried to, you know, smooth things over, kind of make light of the situation, tried to tell our boys to be quiet on the hardwood floors, but it was difficult, and her attitude was not one of wanting to make things work. Then the first week that we were there, she organized an email campaign from the neighbors to our landlord. Uh, as the weeks and months progressed, she became increasingly angry with us, uh, lots of emails, lots of unkind words. Uh, she would do things like, uh, we found our van vandalized with Sharpie on it. She cut down our Christmas lights over Christmas. She was, she was horrible to us, and our, our resolve to be kind to her, it waned over time, uh, to the point where she began to light cigarettes and leave them uh, sort of lit by the vents in her basement suite so that the smoke would come up. This was right uh, as we had number five, our little baby was there, and it was just, we had to saran wrap all the vents. It was, it was horrible, so much so that um, my kindness was uh, very thin, and I began to um, edge towards um, harder words, and I would say to her, you need to stop this, and, and she would just rebuke me back, and um, it got to the point where one evening, I, I shut off the power to her suite, because I, <laughs> I had the electrical panel, which... Which sounds funny, except uh, then the police showed up at my door. And, uh, and I realized in that moment that this had been a colossal failure of love. That we had got to a point which was, was nowhere near what God had been calling us to. It's very difficult to love someone who is intent in harming you, who is intent in, in making your life difficult, who hates everything about you. This is true in the, the small-scale conflicts of our lives, but also in, in the big ones as well. I came across the story uh, told by Ernest Gordon. Ernest was a, uh, a prisoner of war uh, in the Second World War. He was a Scotsman fighting with the Allies in Singapore, and he was taken prisoner uh, by a Japanese warship and brought to the uh, infamous River Quay work camp. And there he was, as you might imagine, uh, beaten and tortured, worked to the point of death. In fact, uh, he had such injuries because of all that that they brought him to a place that they just called the Death House where they would just leave prisoners to die. There's no hope for them. While he was there, he, he says this, or as he entered it, these are his words from his memoir. He said, The floor of this hut was a sea of mud. There were smells there, uh, tropical ulcers eating into flesh and bone. Latrines overflowed, unwashed men, untended men, sick men, humanity gone sour. It was humanity rotting. And in that place, there were, there were two other prisoners there who cared for Ernest. Uh, they would boil uh, rags in water and tend to his wounds that were all infected in his leg. They were believers. And so as they did that, they, they shared the love of God with him. And to their surprise, everyone's surprise, Ernest 
uh, survived. He didn't die. And he came to faith. In fact, a number of the men there in that camp came to faith, and their love for each other and their love for God really sustained them in that dark time. But, but Ernest shares, they could not find it within themselves to love the enemy. He writes this, We had learned from the Gospels that Jesus had his enemies, just as we had ours. But there was a difference. He loved his enemies. He prayed for them. Even as the nails were being hammered through his hands and feet, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But we hated our enemies. We could see how wonderful it was that Jesus would forgive in this way, yet for us to do the same seemed unattainable. I don't think that's confusing to us. But let me ask you a question. Specifically, why was it so hard for them to love their enemies? Why was it so difficult to come to a place where they could, they could show any kindness? We might say that's obvious. I mean, it just it feels wrong. It just feels wrong. To try to show kindness to someone who's treating you that way, it just it feels completely unnatural. And beyond that, it, it feels as if if you were to show love to someone who was treating you that way, you would just be inviting further abuse, right? You'd be saying somehow that it's okay. What you're doing to me is okay, and so you're inviting more of it. In fact, if you look closely at the text, it's, it really seems like that's what Jesus is saying. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. It seems like an invitation to greater harm, right? That if someone's abusing you, you say, hey, you forgot this side, right? If someone's robbing you, you, you say, here's some more of my stuff. Let me open up my doors to my car. And as we think about that, that there's a, a natural wrestle within us to say, that doesn't, something about that does not seem right. I mean, doesn't God have something to say about those who do bad things? What about, what about self-defense? What about protecting our loved ones? What about just law and order? Isn't there something in the Bible that says there should be some sort of law and order and that criminals should be punished? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. Romans 13 says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And so we see really clearly, look, if you are a criminal in, in our city, the police have been put there by God so that they would, they would deal with you. So that your, your, your bad actions, there would be some judgment or consequence for you. And so the, the question that we have before us is, how do, you, how do you square the circle? How do you bring those two together? Really, the question is, is about the character of God. What does God want for us? Does he want for us to simply roll over when we're being abused or mistreated and to, and to bring on more of it? Because I thought he was a loving father. I thought he was a God who loved justice. So how do we bring these two together? Well, the key to kind of unraveling this, this ethical quandary is in the command itself. So look back at verse 27 and see exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. That's the command, to love our enemies. And that word love is, uh, in the Greek, agape, a certain kind of love. There's, the Greeks have lots of words for love. There's eros and philia, romantic love, brotherly love. But this is a love that is selfless. This is a love that, 
that is chiefly concerned with the good of the other. So what Jesus is saying is that what I'm calling you to do is when you have an enemy before you, your mind and your heart should be consumed with what is best for that person. And the answer to that question is not always the same. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for someone who opposes you is to be gracious and forgiving. In fact, very often that is the case. Like, for example, in your workplace, if there's someone who's gossiping about you and you find out about it, right, your, your natural inclination is to, to tell them off or to go and get into an argument or gossip about them, but instead you remember this text and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take a breath. I'm, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to say kind words about them. I'm going to bake them cookies. Bring them into the office. I'm going to show them kindness and grace. And the reason you're doing that is your hope in your heart is that as they experience that unexpected grace, their heart will be changed. That they will be softened. That they will no longer be the kind of person that speaks about those behind their back. Your goal is their good. But there are other times when the most loving thing you can do for someone is to oppose their evil actions, is to not allow it to continue, to do what you can to stop it. For example, if you are um, defrauded by a business partner, the most loving thing is probably not to write them another check, right? And say, here's some more money. You didn't get this money here. I've got some more in this other account. The most loving thing you can do in that moment is to call the police, is to lay the evidence before them, is, is to, if possible, send them to jail or to pay for their crimes. But in that moment, you're doing that for their good. Your hope is that as they are convicted for their crimes, that also their heart will be convicted. That they will see the error of their ways. It doesn't work if you call the police out of, out of vengeance, right? Out of your own hard heart. That's the key to agape love is what's best for the other person with my self-interest taking out of the equation. To be able to love people that way means then that there are a variety of ways in which we are going to respond to our enemies. Agape love isn't about self-preservation, self-interest, or self-anything. It is wholly consumed with the good of the other person. In fact, the golden rule, we find it in verse 31. The golden rule that everyone knows and loves, here's what Jesus says. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. That's agape love in the way that you would hope that people would love you enough to sometimes confront you in your sin, that's how you to, you're to treat others. This is still a difficult thing to do, though. And as we sit here, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a couple of times this question this morning. But who is your enemy? Who is it that comes to mind? If you think about someone who is who is difficult or abrasive or, or hurtful or, or something, who is that person that you are tempted to be bitter in your heart about? And the second question is, what would it look like? What is God calling you to, to do the, the most loving thing possible within your power for that person? Is it to simply forgive them, to move on, or is, or is it to confront them, to speak to them about about the abuse, about the mistreatment. To have this kind of love, I think we can see is, is emblematic, is, is a re reflection of God's love for us, but just knowing it and actually doing it is tough. In fact, even as whoever's come to your mind, you may be thinking, yeah, 
Matt, I kind of see that, and I, I think I might be feeling conviction, but, but you don't know what they've done. You know what they continue to do. I've tried to have some of those conversations. It doesn't go well. Like I, it's hard to get to the point of, of genuinely taking your self-interest out of the equation. And Jesus knows this. He anticipates this hesitancy on our part because in the next section, he goes on to explain the value of this kind of love. So this is the second point, the explanation of true love. Here, Jesus, he identifies the distinct nature of this kind of love, but also the superior value because he contrasts it with the regular kind of love, the the worldly love. Look again at verses 32 to 35, and I want you to look for the language there of, um, of benefit. This is the really interesting thing, is that Jesus makes an appeal to us to be selfless in our love by saying, you're actually going to benefit by loving this way, which doesn't seem to make sense, but it does. So let's read it and look for this language here. He says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, here's the contrast, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. So you see the contrast there and that language of of reward. Now for us to understand, kind of to unpack this, we need to look at both of those kinds of love uh, in greater depth. So we're going to do that by looking at the verses again, but by highlighting the first kind of love, the natural, worldly uh, kind of love we all do, and then the other. So here it is again. You can see the three things that Jesus says are earmarks of the worldly love, that you um, love those who love you, that you do good to those who are good to you, that you lend to someone, you know you're going to get it back. And Jesus basically says, that's nothing special. Everyone loves that way. Right? That, that is a very cheap kind of love. And the reason that it's so cheap and that there's no real benefit for us in it is that it turns our relationships into a form of transaction where you're, you're devaluing the people that you're in relationship with because you're just using them to get something back. You're loving someone, why? Because you know you're going to be loved in return. You're doing good because you're getting something back. This is an inherently unstable way to love people because we don't tend to fulfill our part of the bargain. And when someone who you expected to to treat you well or to love you stops doing that, then all of a sudden you have no motivation to love them in return. And this is how our relationships break down. A spouse that we expected affectionate love from all the time goes into a, a season where that doesn't happen and all of a sudden we're up in arms. What's going on? Our own heart gets harder because we're not getting back what we thought we would get. And we realize that's kind of the only reason that we love them is because we expected to get something in return. When our friends begin to neglect us, we, we all of a sudden draw away. Well, that's, that's not what I was in this for. This kind of love is, is a lesser kind of love. And it's in direct contrast to this agape, enemy-loving love which Jesus shows us in verse 35. He says, he says, but love your enemies. Love them, not in the sense, as we've just established, that you're going to get anything back. We saw that already. Okay, so I'm loving this person, even though I'm not expecting anything back. So I'm giving, but there's still gain for us. The difference is the source of the gain. 
Look again at verse 35, and I'm going to insert some explanatory notes to see this clearly. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return from the person, and your reward will be great from God. You see the difference? That as we love people sacrificially, graciously, we forgive even though we're not getting anything back, and yet we are gaining immense blessing from God. His love for us is flowing through us. And you don't get that in the first kind of love because it's ultimately selfish. But in the second kind, your heart expands as the love of God is poured into you and the reward is great. So what is that great reward? It says it right there, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now that expression is about our nature as children of God. It's not gender specific. What it means is is the son would be the one who would inherit all that the father has. And so when you come to faith, if you are a believer in Christ, you now have the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And so in loving people, it's not that you earn that, but rather it's that you demonstrate that, hey, I, I am a child of God and that I will grow in my identity as a child of God through my love for others. So another way of saying this is that as we love others with the love that God has shown us, we grow in our Christ-likeness. We become more and more like Jesus. This is immensely better than any gain we would get from the world. And let me show you how this works. Um, This is a story that uh, Pastor Kent Hughes tells uh, in his church. There was a missionary couple that has coming home on furlough. They're taking a break. And they were in a very tense situation and coming home and they, uh, people found for them like a townhouse with a back patio looking onto a green belt. And the wife in particular coming home, she was just really looking forward to having some downtime, uh, some time with the Lord. They never really had that kind of a living environment. And so uh, she set up that patio as kind of an oasis where she could spend time with the Lord, she could be in prayer, she could just kind of decompress. And for the first few months, it was fantastic. Until some neighbors moved in. Neighbors are the worst. So <clears throat> neighbor moved in, and this family that moved in, they were, they were very abrasive. They were very loud. They were very obnoxious. Uh, they had um, different habits in terms of music, loud music all the time. There was, uh, before long, kind of garbage strewn all over the lawn, and their children would come, and they would urinate, like, all over the place in there. So she would be on her back patio, and her, her peace was completely disrupted. And it bugged her right away. She knew, though, that she was called to love and be gracious and kind, and yet it was so difficult. And it came to a head when one day she came home, and there was orange paint, some sort of craft paint, all over her patio. The, the neighborhood kids had come over and had decided to do crafts on her patio. There's orange paint everywhere. Just so you're wondering, they weren't named the Glezoses. This was not, not them. Other kids. So they came over, and, um, and she, was so, uh, she was irate, and she went into her room, and she, she got on her knees to pray through this, and she found herself just crying out before the Lord, God, I can't love these people. I hate them. And yet she felt the conviction of God that this wasn't really an option of whether she should or should not love them. She was called to do it, but she... She didn't know how, and so she, she prayed to God, would you help me please, Lord? How, how am I to love these people? And this is the word that God gave her in Colossians 3, verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And she, she thought, okay, 
I'm, I'm going to put on love. I'm going to think of it like a, like a coat I'm putting on. The love of God, the way that God loves me, I'm going I'm to wrap that around myself and now just put myself in that headspace and say, what would I do if I really did love these people? I'm going to make a list. And whatever's on that list, I'm going to do it. So she made a list. Praying for them was on the list. So was baking cookies, bringing food over to them. She made a resolve to invite the wife over for coffee and even to provide free babysitting. She did all of these things over the next few months. And as she did this, she began to understand this family. She began to understand the enormous pressures they were under, and she began to really care for them. See, in a very real sense, she was lending to them and expecting nothing in return. She had no expectation that they would return any of her kindness or affection or love or interest. And yet it was her heart that grew. So much so that when, when they finally moved away, she was, she was kind of heartbroken that she would miss them. This text is not a promise that things are always going to go well like that. There are going to be many times when we, when we show kindness and love to someone who's opposing us and they, they simply return more of it, more of the same. That's not the promise. The promise is that as we do that, we will grow. That, that we will grow in our capacity to love others. That every time we engage in this kind of love, we are going to be shaped more and more into the image of Christ. So the real question for us in terms of our motivation is do we see that as a real benefit? Like, is that a real reward to be more like Jesus? Is that something that we actually yearn for in our lives? Or is it one of those things that we know we should want, but we don't really see the benefit of? Like more fiber, right? I know it should be good for me, but I don't really, I'm not that excited about it, right? If, I'm, if it changes me, I, I don't see it. Sometimes we feel like that when it comes to some of these promises of God. Yeah, I guess that would be good. But here's the thing, if you do not see Christ as supremely valuable and your, your growth in his image to be the thing that is most valuable for you, then you will not be able to love the people around you in this way because your focus will not be on him. It, it will be on you or some other benefit. We need to realize that knowing Jesus and following Jesus is to be on a journey of transformation, to be more and more like him. That's the best thing for us. Apart from our salvation, which comes in an instant by the grace of God, then the promise is that for our whole journey, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, that's God's promise to you. You're going to be more and more like him. This is one of the major ways, one of the major tools that God uses to shape our hearts. But how do we do it? Like, how do we get to a place like, like that, that woman did where we, where we actually take the step of loving, of, of saying something kind, of doing something kind? Well, this brings us to the source of true love. See, the very idea of loving our enemies takes us to the heart of God's own love for us. It takes us to the gospel. Uh, look again. I'm going to read the last bit of verse 35 again and then into 36. Uh, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. See, the focus is put right back on the character of God. That the source of our love is God's love for us. That he did not treat us like enemies. He was gracious and kind. We've already heard from 
from Ernest Gordon in his memoirs that, that Jesus, he prayed for those who mocked him, prayed for those who were nailing him to the cross. It's in that picture of sacrificial, enduring love that we have a source for our own love. That as, as we contemplate the reality that, that we actually were enemies of God before faith, that's an accurate description of all of us in our sin, that we have our backs turned to God, that we're not interested in his things. In fact, we are very often opposing what he wants to do in the world. And how did Jesus treat those who were his enemies? Well, he loved them. And not just, not just those impersonal, like, I mean, he didn't know the soldiers. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And you might say, well, they, they were just kind of doing their job. Right? The religious leaders he had some connection with and he still wanted good for them, but there were people who were his, like his friends, like Judas, who, who betrayed him, and the rest of the 12 who abandoned him. I mean, he, his disposition to them was still love and grace. And for the generations that came afterward, all those who were born in sin, enemies of God, his, his love was the same. Think of the Apostle Paul, probably the... the the classic image of an enemy of God who has then shown grace and he is transformed. Look at what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Though formerly, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see the language there. He was an, an insolent opponent. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. He was persecuting. He wanted, he thought the best thing in the world was for the, the way, the, the Christian way to be wiped out. And yet, Jesus showed up and showed him grace and mercy. And he was transformed from a hard man of the law to a, a gracious man of God. And notice the language there. I love that overflowed. It's this picture that now, because of what Christ has done in him, he has this immense reservoir of love that can't even be contained within himself. It overflows into all the relationships in his life. The source is God's own love for him. But the activity is of showing that to those who are mistreating him. And that happened a lot for Paul. So the same is true for all of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. We have the example of Christ, seeing him on the cross, giving himself for us. We have the experience of Christ, that, that if we really take a minute and, and think about our disposition of heart on our own, it, it is opposed to the things of God, ungrateful. And yet we've experienced his grace and forgiveness. And also we have the spirit of Christ. That God's promise to us is that, that in our salvation he would send the spirit of God to transform us, convict us of sin, lead us into all truth. And so we have what's necessary to love the people around us. If our focus is on Christ himself, we have the capacity. His promise is that he will grow us in that, even though it will be stretching. Ernest Gordon, he, he ends off his, his account of his time in the war uh, with these words uh, demonstrating his growth in his capacity to love. Uh, the POWs from that camp, they were put on a train and sent back to Britain through Asia. And there was a point at which their train was stopped next to another train of wounded Japanese soldiers. And as uh, Ernest and the others looked over at the, at the Japanese soldiers, here's, here's how he described it. 
He said they were in a shocking state. He said, I've never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud and blood and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. The wounded men looked forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriage, waiting for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere for them to go and no one to care for them. These were the enemy. Without a word, he said, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water in their canteens went over to the Japanese train to help them. We knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, and to smile and say a kind word. But not everyone was pleased. One allied officer said, what bloody fools you are. Do you not realize that these are your enemy? And Gordon responded, that's the whole point. That in that moment, they had seen their enemy most clearly. In the way that God sees them, destitute, broken, waiting for death. Do you realize that all those who are in sin are in that very same state? And very often, the type of hatred and opposition that is being shown to us is being shown by someone who does not know the love of God. And that if we can come to a place where we see them as God sees them, then we will have a compassion for them that supersedes whatever hate they're showing us. Because we have the same source of love as these soldiers did. Their ability to go and to tend to those who maybe weeks earlier were, were abusing them is found in a recognition of God's own love for us and how he sees the people of the world. So I asked you this one question already. I'm going to ask it again. Who is an enemy in your life? Who is the person or, or persons that as you think of them, you're, you're, you just get tense? That there's an anger or a bitterness that comes? Who is the person who's so very difficult to, to live with perhaps? And what would it look like for you to do the most loving thing within your power to them? To pray for them, to be kind to them, or maybe even to confront them in their sin. But how is it that you can do that with a mindset of Christ and with taking your own self-interest out of the equation? It's only by praying for a greater filling of the Spirit of God and to recognize more and more, to even meditate on the truths of scripture of how Jesus loves us. Because as we see that picture of Christ, as we're reminded of the, this call, this difficult and yet wonderful call for us to love the people around us, we see what God wants to do in us and what he wants to do in our community, which is to be transformed by the love of God. So I'm gonna close in prayer. I'm gonna pray for us as a people that we would grow in our love and I'm gonna pray uh, on this Remembrance Day for the enemies that our nation has. Uh, we do pray for our soldiers that are involved in conflict, but we're going to pray for the enemies as well, that they might know the Lord. So join with me in prayer.